Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Last. In this week's episode, we cover a broad range of topics with Vanessa Sturgeon, ranging from time management and priority management, the current state of real estate, adversity, civic responsibility, generational family businesses, passing on values, and much, much more. As the president of TMT Development, founder of Sturgeon Development Partners, a wife, mother, and civic leader, not to mention a board member many, many times over. Vanessa's perspectives are both original and well-informed. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with Vanessa Sturgeon. All right, Vanessa, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Thank you for having me, Jared. It's good to be here. Yeah, so I ordinarily could just read your bio, which would be super impressive, and I'm sure we'll cover some of that. But I didn't want to introduce you. If I said, who's Vanessa Sturgeon, and I wanted to introduce you to our community, I wanted you to talk to us about how you identify. Who are you and what's important to you? Well, that's actually a little bit, I've never had anybody do that before. Usually I always get an intro, but I would say I identify probably primarily as a mom. Yeah. And I have three boys at home, third grade, sixth grade, and seventh grade. And I'm also a working mom with a great partner at home, thankfully. And I, I'm also a very deeply entrenched Portland community member, a lifelong Portland resident, and I'm currently sitting on five boards in the Portland area. Wow. Well, so that that that's the outline then for all of the cool things that we get to talk about. So I guess so day, your day job is you've spent 18 plus years now in Portland in, in a real estate investor developer role. What's kind of the lay of the land for for TMT these days? Kind of what's the the scope of what you guys are up to? TMT is really focused recently in civics. So I spend probably 60% of my day in civic matters just because the community is in a very difficult place right now between COVID and the nightly rioting and criminal destruction in downtown Portland where most of our assets are. You know, we're in a position of trying to protect the community so it can rebound when we come up for error from COVID. You know, such a huge part of what makes Portland Portland is the small businesses. It's really the the fabric from the food scene to the retail scene. It's all driven really by small businesses. And unfortunately, a lot of them have dealt with the one-two punch of COVID you know, it, and the the rioting, which has, you know, they were barely clinging on and then 
with COVID and then they lost their inventory and they've had their windows smashed and their stores graffitied repeatedly over the last 10 months or so. So the goal is to support those small businesses so they make it through to the other side of COVID and can reopen to a strong and healthy, vibrant Portland economy. Yeah. Vanessa, you mentioned something prior to us going live on the podcast that I wanted you to, to share with, with the greater community. Can you talk to me about the work that you're doing through the Rose City Downtown Collective? Sure. Jim, Mark, and I co-founded the Rose City Downtown Collective as a way really to support small businesses through COVID and the rioting. And we've expanded really what we're doing beyond that into a downtown action plan as well. So, you know, we're working on an old-fashioned letter-writing campaign to City Hall and the county right now to elevate some of the bigger issues that businesses are feeling. The growth in houselessness since the, the pandemic started has been astronomical. And, you know, we're calling for the arrest and prosecution of the rioters who are causing destruction in downtown. And, you know, there's just a handful of common goals that virtually all businesses, small and large across the Portland area have. And we're working to elevate the voices of small businesses to City Hall. So our first campaign, financial campaign, to help small businesses came in the form of a broken window and glass fund. So we issued 22 micro grants of $1,000 to small businesses to help repair their windows. We were hoping to raise $2,500 through that campaign and we raised 23,000. And our next campaign that we just launched is a GoFundMe that is aimed at helping small businesses clean up the outside of their stores from graffiti and vandalism. So that campaign just kicked off and we're at about $4,000 raised so far. Awesome. Vanessa, are you, were you always wired the way that you are today where you see an issue and then you craft the solution? I think it's easy to, to identify the problems. It, it feels like people are really good at these days pointing out the problems, but very few people organize and take action. I mean, is that something that you remember doing growing up or something that your, your grandfather instilled in you? Or, I mean, where does that come from? It's really just my personality. and kind of the ethos of my family. We're all wired that way. And you can talk about things till you're blue in the face, but action is where it really shows. And a good example of that is that my grandfather founded an organization called New Avenues for Youth. And I chair the board now. The organization is over 20 years old at this point, but he founded it with a group of business people. So it was Pete Nickerson, Mitch Horniker, Joyce Furman, Harry Merlot and my grandfather that formed this organization. And what's unique about New Avenues and where you can see the private sector having its influence on a nonprofit is the fact that we provide emergency services, but only for a limited amount of time. And then the youth have to decide if they want to continue with the program and continue being supported. They either need to be in school and we offer an alternative school program, or they need to be in job training, one of the two. So, um, you know, it's all about creating a plan and driving results. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes the driving results doesn't always necessarily show up. And I think that's kind of cool when you get the influences of the, the private sector that's 
trying to deliver specific outcomes and hold organizations to performance. So you're part of five organizations, five boards right now. How do you determine what your capacity is? At a certain threshold, you just run out of time in a day. Are you at capacity? I think I'm pretty much at capacity right now because I, I really, it's important to be around for my kids too. And, and that's, the, that's the difficulty, right? But I'm one of the lucky people that has access to a lot of help. So I have a nanny and, you know, a housekeeper and all the, you know, all those things I get. It's, I have more resources than most people do. And so when they say, how do you find the time? I find the time because I'm lucky enough to have other people do certain things for me that allows me the bandwidth to do those things. So, you know, there's a lot of people ask me that question all the time. And, you know, who I really think deserve more credit are the single parents that are out there doing it alone and are getting on the bus to go back and forth to work, spending three hours a day commuting and are exhausted and wrung out by the time they get home at night to their kids. And, you know, those are the people that really deserve the accolades and the credit. All right. So I'm picking up, well, it's not the first time I've picked up on it, but your ego is not as large as your influence, if that makes sense. So you, you've been blessed with humility. Where does that come from? And I guess as a parent myself, wanting to raise kids that are both driven and humble, how do you think about instilling that value in your, in your own kids? That's probably the nicest compliment I've ever gotten, Jared. Thank you. It's just totally my family's values. It's been my family's values growing up. And I was also lucky enough to get to go to Jesuit high school where service is just at the base of everything. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's a phenomenal place to learn, you know, how to be a grown up, right? In high school, because the influences of, you know, the importance of being kind and generous and serving others is just, that it's just part of the everyday ethos of the school. So I think in large part, it comes from that. And I'm thankful to my parents for for sending me there, frankly, pretty lucky. And then I, I also went to Santa Clara, which is another Jesuit based college, same kind of, of thing. They're really heavily focused on service. Yeah, I don't think I've ever told you, did you know, I graduated from Jesuit high school down in Sacramento? I did know that I did know that you were, if I recall correctly, you were both a soccer player and a football player. Yes. Yes. And then football ended up paying, paying a couple of bills. So it worked out and came up and fell in love in the Northwest, both with the area and my wife and stayed. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's fun. Well, so then we spend time sometimes chatting about what we get right and wrong as parents, and we probably get plenty of things wrong. But as we, we try to pursue like raising well-rounded kids that are empathetic and driven and understanding and how are you trying to instill humility within your own kids? Because they have op- opportunities that maybe others don't have and they're working hard. But again, that's just one of the things that I wrestle with, you know, with our own kids. Because to some extent, values are caught, not taught, right? And so I'm curious if if you've had any perspective or insight on that. Oh, for sure. I mean, a huge part of what we do in raising our kids is exposing them to different people and different opportunities. So always made sure my kids spent a lot of time downtown, that they interface and are not afraid of homeless people, that 
they understand the value of their influence and their kindness to other people. And it's just one of those things where, you know, what you get in the most trouble for in our house is dishonesty and lack of kindness. So that's where kids get grounded, not for going too long on electronics or whatever, or getting bad grades. It's really focused on how they treat others. Yeah, uh, that's it. definitely something that's well within their control. One of the things I think that I love about the kind of the story of TMT is its intergenerational nature and its grounded deep roots within the community. Within the firm here at DeLap, you know, we work with a lot of intergenerational families and maybe that's kind of what makes Portland a little quirky and, and unique is kind of thought of it as a Goldilocks town, you know, not too big, not too small, but but just right. It's Portland. And and so it's great companies like TMT that continue to reinvent themselves and fight the good fight and fill the void. You know, when there's a need to to support on a civics level, you're you're there. Talk to me a little bit about the story of TMT and kind of how you eventually found your way into it. I'm curious if if that was something that you already always had on the radar or if it was kind of a later pivot post-college. This is kind of a wild story. So I'll start at the beginning. My grandfather was a high school dropout. And, you know, by the time most kids were learning how to drive, he was already a professional athlete. So he was a fairly famous boxer. And his last fight as an amateur, actually both of their last fight as an amateur boxer, was a split decision draw against Sugar Ray Robinson at Madison Square Gardens. So he lost to Sugar Ray in a split decision draw. And both of them actually were headed to the Olympics at that. They were on the Olympic team. So they were, and then the Olympics got canceled, of course, because of World War II. So he pivoted. My grandfather was drafted into the war and was not a great soldier. He went in a private, came out a private three years later and mostly found his niche entertaining the troops by boxing. <laughs> and, uh, and what he got paid in were uh, bananas because they hardly had any fresh food, you know, where they were stationed in New Guinea. He got back from the war and got into boxing management. So he got married, had his last fight because he found a house in East Moreland that he wanted to buy, but he needed the down payment. So he did one last fight and then went into boxing management and is at the time where the mafia was heavily involved in fixing fights. And he was testifying against fight fixing at a boxing commission meeting that was being held in Portland and walked out from his testimony and felt himself getting stared at very coldly and turned around and looked at this man who was giving them this horrible stare. And the next morning he woke up and pulled out his Daily Oregonian and on the front page, it said Bugsy Siegel in Portland. And he instantly recognized the guy who was giving him the stare and decided he was out of that field completely. He did not want to mess with the mob. Yeah, that's that's a good decision. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he pivoted him and Harold Schnitzer then at the time were both trading in wood out of the Philippines. Okay. He did that for a little while. Then he got into the family business, which was movie theaters. And 
he had the idea that they should build theaters with one, more than one screen. And his family didn't agree with that idea. So they had a family split. His family went and, and did built their movie theater chain and he built his, which ended up being the largest privately held movie theater chain west of the Mississippi. Sold to Act 3, then later to Regal. And that was in the late 80s. And at that time, right around the time he sold the theaters, my grandmother passed away of cancer. And so he bought a boat, called it the Act 4, after selling the theaters to Act 3 and sailed around the world twice, grieved, you know, grieved deeply for four years and came back and decided he was bored in his late 70s. He started up the real estate side of his career. So this business is fairly new, really, compared to... That is to actually pretty fascinating. I, I didn't realize that it was kind of birthed out of a, a semi-retirement. It was supposed to be a full retirement. He, <laughs> it just didn't work. You know, I mean, he was deeply in love with his wife. And when she wasn't there to enjoy, you know, their labor together, didn't really just want to sit around. So real estate became career number three. He was an athlete theater owner, then into real estate. Interesting. So I guess, you know, you grew up, the real estate, what didn't really look like it looks like today. You know, your grandfather was running the largest privately held movie theater business west of the Mississippi and then and then sailing for a good part of your childhood. So then he gets this business fired up. You know, you went off to Santa Clara and then you were in law school, right? At Willamette? Yeah, I was doing the JD MBA program at Willamette and you know, he asked me to come work for him in college you know, when I when I was graduating from college. And I told him I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do the schooling that I had originally planned to do. I always wanted to be a judge. And I made it two years in and I didn't like law school as much as I thought I would. I really liked business school. And he really he was 82 at that point and wanted me to come back. So I did and finished business school at night, never finished law school. And things just happened really organically. I worked with him for a long time. I started at the very bottom of this business doing, you know, property management assistant work. And then over time, you know, we just started working more and more together on the more strategic aspects of development. What do you like about real estate? Every day is different. There is something new happening every day. So there's all the fun deals and I get to work with you know, everybody from a local mom and pop shop to the Morgan Stanleys of the world and meet lots of new and interesting people. But also weird things happen every day. And it's, it's funny and fun. Yeah, we got to find a different word than weird, like memorable, unique, kind of reframe it. Weird, weird sounds negative, entertaining. Yeah, it varies from entertaining to weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll just call weird things weird. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we know the surgeons value honesty. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> There's all kinds of deals that you've had throughout your career. And obviously, you don't have a favorite child. So you probably do you have a favorite piece of property or favorite deal? Or are they all kind of special for different reasons? I don't really know how you taught Park Avenue West. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty wild. You know, I had to shut down the project during the recession. And 
I love that story, right? Because I mean, it's a story of adaptability and resilience, and it shows that success is rarely linear. I mean, give us the cliff notes on Park Avenue West. I mean, most people in Portland are going to be very familiar with it, but we have listeners actually all around the country. So just kind of the cliff notes on it. Sure. And I'll weave in the personal notes too. Yeah, okay, so yeah that'd be awesome. We start the project and we know that we start it without financing because in Portland's a spec office market, they want to see things moving, right? So we get going. We know that in the event that we can't get a bank to finance it, it's okay. We'll pull equity out of other properties and keep going on the project. And then Lehman and Bear Stearns. And, you know, so we, we started the project in 2008, get all the way to the bottom of this six-story parking garage and a 90-foot hole in the ground, start coming back up. We're on the third parking deck and we have to shut the project down. We own all the steel. It's coming up the river on a boat to be delivered. And I shut the project down. I can't even fathom like what what's going through your head and heart in that moment because hindsight's 2020, but in that moment in time, you don't know what the future has in store. Well, it bothered me. The thing that bothered me the most is that I knew that every guy that came out of that hole to pick up their pink slip wasn't going to be working for the next 12 to 18 months. And that doesn't feel very good. And I went into labor six weeks early with my second son. So, and then we were closing on a house. We, (laughs) We moved and the seller would give us no reprieve on it. So I shut down the project, went into labor and signed documents on a new house in 36 hours. And (laughs) so when the doctor came in to his first check on me after having the baby, we were in there with a notary signing the home docs and we had to move a week later and I was doing all the press and whatnot from home after having this baby. It was really, really wild. And, you know, he was early, so he was fine, but he was tiny. And I remember virtually nothing about like that entire two weeks of my life. It was a very extended out-of-body experience. And then another funny piece of it, a Wall Street Journal reporter called and did an interview on it. And at the end, off the record, he said, you know, this project is never getting going again, right? And I said, well... Don't be so sure, Elliot. And three and a half years later, he called me back and said, well, you pulled it off where, you know, you're going again. I stand corrected. So I'm making it the deal of the week. So Park Avenue West was the Wall Street Journal's deal of the week when we restarted. What do you think you learned in that process? I guess the person that you were before that experience versus the person that you were the day that you cut the ribbon to open the building. How did that experience shape you, positively impact you? It just teaches you so much about keeping your head down and driving forward, you know, and not letting whatever feelings of fear get in the way of driving forward on a project that you know is a good one. And Stoll Reeves stuck with us. They're our anchor tenant. They take up 55% of the building. I've signed the lease with Stoll Reeves now twice, you know, the first prior to the first shutdown. And then, you know, we got going on the project four and a half years later again, it sat dormant and really served as a bellwether of 
the economy reinvigorating itself. And you just can't fight the market that much. I know for sure now. Yes, don't fight the market. I've heard people talk about don't fight the Fed, you know, as it pertains to interest rates and stuff. So yes, put the change the sales, I guess, to capture the wind. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well said. What I've observed throughout my career is a lot of the time people will have an operating business and the operating business, you know, requires a lot of time, energy and effort, working capital, but it can also be pretty lucrative in terms of once once the business is successful and fully capitalized, it produces a lot of cash flow. And a byproduct of that is often the acquisition of real estate, you know, the business itself starts to operate. And so you sell the operating entity, which has created a lot of cash flow, but the real wealth ends up being in the real estate. So then people end up owning real estate kind of as a byproduct of, of other interests. So, but it seems to be highly correlated with wealth. And so the, we spent a lot of time working with people that, that own and operate real estate. I was curious if you kind of had any core principles around real estate or, or insights kind of like that you have picked up over the last two decades of, of spending so much time working in it. The do not do list or the, <laughs> the principles to, to live by, kind of any, any thoughts and convictions around real estate as an, an asset class. What I feel like we do really well in this business is that we hold for the long term and invest well upfront. So you start with a great location, you layer in a great architect with a timeless product, and you really invest in the finishes. So you have a really good quality asset and you're holding it where you really make money is at the 10 year turn. When you renew leases and the building still looks fresh and new and the product is really good and high quality and you have something of architectural significance. So that's sort of our, our core values and that leads into this new legislation, the Opportunity Zone legislation. And there's an opportunity for people to hold long term as well. They can sell a real estate asset or sell stock and reinvest it into real estate with significant tax benefit. And we end up executing our standard business model, but with these layers of tax advantages as well. So pretty phenomenal. We got lucky in Portland with our opportunity zone designations for sure. And so we have some really good projects that are gonna be going forward that are opportunity zone in Portland. As you kind of go through, sometimes we'll use the the metaphor of big rocks, kind of the order in which the rocks go in the jar determine whether or not they all fit. What role does does tax consideration play? Like as it's probably not primary or secondary, but it's it's certainly on the short list. Kind of how do you prioritize that in a project? Oh, tax considerations are definitely they might even be secondary okay. for people. Real estate investing is, it tends to be really good for generational wealth transfer because you get that step up in basis. Yeah. And so that's why people tend to like real estate as a long-term vehicle. There are also these crazy rides too. Right now, the retail asset class is really turbulent. Hospitality, even more turbulent. But in the long run, real estate is one of those things that really helps families get ahead financially in the long term. Yeah, no doubt. It's certainly the most tax preferenced asset class out there. And, and it's pretty wonderful how it translates so, so efficiently to cash flow. 
the underlying asset might move up or down in value, but the cash flow seems to be pretty stable across most asset classes, which is what we live on. It's like oxygen, financial oxygen. Exactly. If you don't overdo it with leverage, that is most certainly the case. And that's another thing that I learned out of the downturn. Never overdo it with the leverage. Is leverage somewhat subjective? I mean, do some people experience too much or too little? Like, Or do you have like an objective way to speak about leverage? It's definitely subjective. It depends on your appetite for risk, just like buying stocks. It all depends on your risk appetite. Yep. That said, we definitely got out over our skis during the financial crash in 09. And there are lots of takeaways there just in terms of, of asset fundamentals. And you can definitely underdo leverage as well. So just trying to get it right. And we're in these historically low interest rate times right now. So it's a great time to be getting into real estate if you can swing it because asset pricing is certainly not what it was a year ago. Do you have a, a preference? You did talk about the nuances. Very few of us had a pandemic plan that wasn't on the radar when we did our SWOT analysis, but hospitality has been impacted differently than multifamily. Amongst the different types of of commercial real estate opportunities, do you have preferences or comfort zones from, from one asset class over another? Office is my comfort zone because that's where I've lived my whole career. And it has been remarkably steady throughout this pandemic because office leases are long term. Yeah. Multifamily has been really hard hit by the pandemic because of the widespread governmental policies with regard to rent. So we have buildings that are full of people that are fully employed and working from home and just not paying rent, unfortunately. So taking advantage of the system right now, it, it, that a lot of that is happening. And it's been very difficult to deal with as a landlord because we're not getting the same type of forbearance on mortgages that people are getting on their homes. That is true. I personally find that quite personally frustrating as I try to manage my own little teeny real estate portfolio. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can pay. It feels like if you, you're paying for Comcast, it feels like you should pay rent. But, you know, obviously d different circumstances. So try to... And you're working at Intel, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Working from home, you're being fully paid. So there are too many loopholes Yeah. in the way that this is drafted. And nobody has nailed it. In this pandemic, I will give everyone that the private sector has struggled too. It's just working really hard to get rules drafted way too fast in a scenario that no one has ever been in before. It's true. Throw a lot at it and see what sticks. How's your crystal ball these days? <laughs> it's overboard. Over Thrown overboard. Oh, so you, you've <laughs> it doesn't you, you, don't, you don't have a crystal ball? I don't. I don't. I don't. I was kind of curious, like, uh, you know, I'm wrestling with this with some of our current clients, even our own firm is contemplating kind of, you know, we've been working remotely now for a year. There's some benefits to it. There's some huge costs to it as well. And we're trying to think about our office is, is part is an expression of our strategy. It's an expression of our culture. It's the place where relationships are made with our within our own team and with our clients. And so it's important. But I'm curious if you have any forecasts of like, what does the the office, if there are any changes to the future office post-COVID, what those might look like? There are definitely going to be changes. 
and we're experiencing them in all different sorts of ways. So you have tenants who at the beginning of the pandemic said they were going to shut down their corporate office and everyone was going to work from home from now on and they were going to have a very small limited office that have completely reversed course and are now out in the market looking for additional space so they could be permanently socially distanced. And you hit on the main issues, which are culture erosion and lack of opportunities for training. And I feel like millennials and Gen Zs have been hurt the most by this pandemic in terms of how their career is going to evolve because of it. They have been at home. They have not had the opportunities to learn from their colleagues and further their relevance in their respective industries. So it's going to be interesting to see what people do. I mean, you've heard Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are requiring people to come back into the office by the end of the year, and they're not going to allow people to work from home other than in a limited capacity. And then you hear of companies who it's working totally fine for, and they will probably downsize. And my guess is that we end up somewhere within 10% on either side of the equation, and it ultimately kind of becomes a wash. Yeah, there is an idiosyncrasy. Like I, I think it was Simon Sinek was talking about, there's a difference between making new relationships and maintaining the ones that you have. You know, creating new trust versus maintaining the trust that was already established. And so I think when you just, when you go into the pandemic and, and there is positive inertia with the client relationships and with the current internal team relationships, that's different than trying to build new client relationships and or onboarding new people and all the informal communication that occurs you know, around the both the real and metaphorical water cooler. You know, how important that can be to creating a shared vision and a sense of being that we're all probably missing a little bit right now. Onboarding has been incredibly difficult, hasn't it? It's just one of those things that is so difficult to do when someone is exclusively working from home. It's a different skill set than we have. You know, uh, yesterday onboarded somebody to my team and working through what that looks like. But again, when you're sitting there on Microsoft Teams or Zoom and trying to share the the document that you're working on, it, it's a completely different experience. So certainly, I feel like the quality is compromised because we're all trying to learn how do we do this differently? Because for the last 20 years, that's not how we onboarded people. Exactly. And you just can't get to know somebody the same way you can in person. It's just not the same. It's different. It's different. I'm excited for us to open things up a little bit more out here. It seems like the rest of the country is starting to open up. So hopefully we return to some level of normalcy relatively soon. I sure hope so. I guess as we're kind of putting a bow on the conversation, what are some of the priorities that you have either personally or for TMT for the remainder of 2021? Getting back to work, getting healthy and getting downtown moving again. So the people are really what's missing from downtown. And I cannot wait for things to get back to normal. I love Portland and I, I miss it. Yeah. Actually, let's, I'll ask a question and maybe it's certainly relevant to me, maybe re- relevant to the audience as well. But I was driving around this weekend downtown Portland with my oldest daughter and just feeling sad, a combination of sad and frustrated and mad at what it, I observed. And, but this is where, where I live and work and it's where I want to raise my family. And so I guess as somebody who has a, a heart for Portland, that what are our options? Like how do we, if we're trying to reinvigorate and revive Portland, 
What are some of the ways that we could plug in? Well, the mayor's office rolled out a campaign to clean up the garbage across Portland. And that, just that, is a huge step in the right direction. The scale of this problem is bigger than any one set of people or entity can handle, and that includes the government. So if we as a community want to see Portland back to the way it was, we're going to have to get our hands dirty. That opportunity for volunteerism is right in front of us, and it's going to be unveiled in a big way. They started on Foster Powell and cleaned up 3.6 tons of garbage this last weekend, and the city has been gridded out, and there are going to be opportunities citywide for you you to get in and and volunteer with your church or your family or you know a group of friends or your team but that i think is a great first step in the right direction and it takes us back to the beginning of our conversation how do you teach your kids well you get them out there and take advantage of a great volunteer opportunity like that yeah well and talk about making sure that they're they maintain their humility if you're out there picking up trash that you didn't put down that's a, a way to keep them humble and take some ownership of the city that they call home that's right exactly one other thing i think that uh, you'd mentioned to me i thought was interesting i learned something the homelessness issue isn't actually part of the city's budget it's the county correct yeah it's the county that carries the lion's share of the budget and the responsibility for the homelessness so housing people and getting them into shelter really falls under the county's bucket. Interesting. Well, I guess there's some uh, civic research that I can also partake in to supplement my volunteering. That's right. And when you want your voice heard, now you know who to direct your concerns or suggestions to. Excellent. And then uh, you'll probably keep, your, keep busy this spring and summer chasing your boys around whatever the sport of the season is. Yes, for sure. Lacrosse and baseball. Lacrosse and baseball. Yeah, we've got uh, some junior golf and baseball going right now. Nice. Awesome. Perfect weather for junior golf. It's hopefully the ball starts bouncing. Weather like this will hopefully uh, get us out on the course soon. Well, Vanessa, just wanted to say thank you so much for taking some time to to visit with us, share kind of the the story of TMT and and kind of what gets you fired up. and, And thank you so much for just caring enough and the leadership you're providing Portland in its time of need. Absolutely. Anytime, Jared. Thanks for having me.